Welcome to the GW Reg Studies Podcast. I'm Nate Thompson at the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center. Can you believe how quickly last year flew right by? There were so many major developments and reforms to the regulatory review process. We thought it would be helpful to take a look back over 2023 and take stock of the important trends and where they're headed. Joining me today is the policy dream team at our center, analyst Sarah Hay, Mark Fabrizio, and Zoe Shea. Hello, team. So looking back at over the course of a whole year, for me, it all starts with the actions on modernizing regulatory review. Zoe, do you want to recap that for us? Sure. Um, so as directed by President Biden's day one memorandum, the administration took significant steps to modernize regulatory review last year. Um, I think as uh, most of our, our audience uh, know, on April 6th, President Biden signed Executive Order 14094, modernizing regulatory review. The executive order reaffirmed uh, long-standing principles established in EO 12A66 and 13563, but also amended several key elements in the regulatory review process. So first of all, it made changes to the definitions of significant actions, which were set in section 3F in EO 12A66. EO 14094 revised section 3F1 of EO 12A66, which has set a threshold for rules referred to as economically significant actions. Again, uh, that may be a very familiar term uh, to our audience. So those economically significant actions were referred to those with an expected annual impact of more than $100 million on the economy. Uh, EO 14094 raised that threshold to $200 million. The new threshold is also subject to adjustment every three years to account for changes in GDP. The actions meeting this threshold are now referred to as Section 3F1 significant instead of economically significant actions. Also, um, uh, EO 14094 amended Section 3F4 uh, on rules raising novel legal or policy issues. The revised category implies a narrower definition of significant regulations because the designation now requires explicit authorization by the OIRA administrator. EO 14094 also directed the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, to issue revisions to Circular A4. And Mark, do you want to uh, talk about that? Sure. Thanks, Zoe. So Circular A4 is OMB's guidance to agencies on regulatory impact analysis. This was the first update since 2003 when the uh, first version of those guidelines were uh, were passed, were, uh, were issued. Um, and the proposed revisions to A4 were put out on April 6th of 2023. Then there was a period of public comment and peer review. And then they were finally um, finalized on November 9th of 2023. So it was a short uh, turnaround, uh, six or seven months or so. And we discussed a lot of the notable revisions at length elsewhere, including a prior podcast episode. So I'm just going to mention a few highlights really briefly here. Um, one is the change to the recommended discount rates from 3 and 7% to 2% under the new guidance. The new circular also put more emphasis on the consideration of distributional effects and in, did, made some other changes like including the permitting, uh, including 
uh, the use of weights in distributional analysis. There's also um, some recommendations in the circular to consider international effects of regulations. And it also increases a focus on using behavioral biases to justify uh, regulatory action. And you can check out our website for a couple comparisons we did between the 2003 and the proposed circular, and then the proposed and the final, uh, and also uh, several public comments uh, from folks affiliated with the center on the draft circular. Right, so those actions also included a really important um, set of policies regarding public engagement. And Sarah, would you like to take us through those? Yeah, thanks, Nate. So Executive Order 14094, in addition to the updates that Zoe and Mark mentioned, called on agencies to improve public engagement in the regulatory process. And so that's been spearheaded by the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA, and they've actually been working to update um, guidance for federal agencies related to public engagement since fall of 2022. Last year, OIRA requested comments on the public engagement guidance in spring of 2023, and they issued the final guidance in July. There's a lot that's in that guidance document, but probably the biggest action on the public engagement side is directing agencies to start including public engagement opportunities in the biannual unified agenda. So that's that document that agencies submit all of their regulatory actions to, and now agencies are going to have to start including their public engagement opportunities as well. Um, another key component of the guidance is that OIRA has directed agencies to update their ex parte communications guidance um, to allow for just like additional communications and outreach to particularly underserved communities, but generally the public in the pre-roll stage of rulemaking where um, input from the public can really change like what regulatory options the agency is considering as it looks at a problem. So we also saw important steps toward a potential framework for regulating artificial intelligence. Mark, can you tell us how we got to this point and how close we are to setting some rules for AI? Sure, yeah, so I mean, quite a lot happened in 2023. Uh, this was on the heels of OpenAI releasing ChatGPT at the end of November, 2022. So AI and it's you know related uh, techniques kind of exploded onto the scene and has become pretty commonplace in public discourse. Uh, so unsurprisingly, the government has taken some action too. Um, the major, I think, movement is mostly stemming from President Biden's executive order 14110, titled Safe, Secure, and Trustworthy Development and Use of AI. And this is what the Biden administration is using to try to lay the groundwork for some future regulation. Um, not a lot of that has been implemented yet. And a lot of what is included in the executive order is more reporting um, and, and uh, sort of establishing broader guidelines and frameworks rather than uh, regulation itself. Those will be things that come down the line that actually the agencies will actually do uh, as they implement. And so uh, the executive order is big, though. It's 36 pages, uh, has eight guiding principles, 33 different definitions of some very technical things, and dozens of distinct actions for the agencies to take. Um, I'm just going to focus on one right now for the sake of time. And this is one that has been talked about a, a bit in the media. The Department of Commerce um, was directed to establish reporting requirements for foundation models. 
And uh, and those are the sort of models that are very popular that uh, ChatGPT is built on. And commerce is also supposed to define which models and computing clusters used to train the models are subject to those reporting requirements. Uh, in the meantime, the executive order, it set a size threshold for which models and clusters are covered. And this was this threshold was based on the computing power used to train the models or the theoretical maximum computing capacity of the clusters. And so this kind of size threshold of which models have to report uh, to government entities is probably one of the bigger takeaways from the executive order. Um, but there's a lot more uh, that's coming down the pipeline. OMB also proposed a memorandum on agency use of AI, and it included guidance and requirements for federal agencies including independent regulatory agencies, um, and for them to take internal measures like designating chief AI officers, developing compliance plans, and then submitting um, different AI use cases to OMB, and then that would also be shared publicly down the line. Um, but not a whole bunch has been done yet. A government accountability office report from December, 2023, it found that most of the agency use cases were still kind of in the planning phase and that many of the agencies haven't finished implementing the directives from the executive order yet either. There are several actions uh, that were related to international trade and transactions related to sensitive technologies, which include AI systems that affect uh, military and cyber-enabled capabilities. Um, and what these actions did was... Um, work toward creating categories of what sort of trade transactions should uh, trigger a notification that occurred and what sort of transaction should be prohibited in general. But uh, some of that is still on the earlier phase as well, uh, more in the proposal section. Right, we will watch for the next steps, possibly legislative steps on, on artificial intelligence landing near Capitol Hill sometime this year. Uh, thanks for that, Mark. So the Biden administration had taken a government-wide approach to improving equity in our society, and in particular with the relationship that Americans have with federal agencies. Uh, Sarah, what were the big milestones on this front last year? Yeah, so this year, the administration continued to issue some new executive orders regarding racial equity. Um, two notable ones were Executive Order 14091, further advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government. And that one really just continues the actions that Nate mentioned that the administration took like from day one um, on advancing racial equity in federal government and in the way that federal government relates to the American people. And there's also Executive Order 14096, revitalizing our, revitalizing our nation's commitment to environmental justice for all, which takes a new whole of government approach to advancing environmental justice in particular. Um, beyond executive actions, there were some notable, there was notable regulatory activity in the fair housing space this year. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, and the Federal Housing Finance Agency were pretty active in their rulemaking. Um, notably, HUD issued its affirmatively furthering fair housing rule again. Affirmatively furthering fair housing enforces the Fair Housing Act's prohibition on discrimination based on a variety of characteristics. Um, 
And beyond just not discriminating, the Fair Housing Act also requires um, departments and agencies that administer housing programs to affirmatively further fair housing. So to go beyond not just discriminating, but to actively promote fair housing. And that rule had initially been issued during the Obama administration. It was revoked during the Trump administration. And so the Biden administration reissued it as a proposed rule in 2023. So we'll see where um, any finalization of that happens this year. Additionally, HUD reinstated its discriminatory effects standards, which prohibits discrimination regardless of the intent of the actor. So even if the actor didn't intend to discriminate, you still can't discriminate if your actions have discriminatory effects. And then finally, the Fair Housing fi Federal Housing Finance Agency proposed some regulations to improve fair lending and fair housing practices and better oversight of the funding organizations like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And another notable development that includes HUD, but also another agency, Health and Human Services, um, both of those agencies proposed rules that would prohibit funding recipients from discriminating against people on the basis of disability. So that was another interesting aspect and really emphasizing that it's equity for everybody, not just racial equity, but also including disability and other protected characteristics in the actions the administration's taking. It was really great to see that shift in approach um, on the on the federal agenda. I agree, Sarah. Um, and, and looking at outcomes, not just on intent. So that's exciting development. And now over to um, one area that directly affects almost all Americans, and that's labor regulations. Uh, Zoe, which were the actively updated uh, labor rules or those in progress of being updated at the end of 2023? Yeah, um, so I will just highlight several notable actions related to labor regulations issued last year. Um, first, the Department of Labor issued a proposal in September to revise the regulations implementing the minimum wage and overtime pay exemptions under the Fair Labor Standards Act, FLSA. So the FLSA requires covered employers to pay employees a minimum wage and overtime premium pay, but it exempts employees working in exec executive, administrative, professional, outside sales and the computer capacity from this requirement. The Department of Labor has implemented this exemption since 1940. And in this uh, proposed rule, a major revision is to increase the salary level and the compensation threshold for highly compensated employees. This revision would affect which employees are included in the exemption. And other notable actions related to labor regulations last year include uh, the Department of Labor's final rule implementing the Davis-Bacon related acts, which contains various revisions to the standards governing uh, prevail, uh, prevailing wages and fringe benefits for federal construction workers. Additionally, the National Labor Relations Board finalized a rule to establish a new standard for determining whether two employers are joint employers of particular employees. Uh, we highlighted this action in our previous regulatory year in review as well. This action was uh, controversial uh, at its proposed rule stage. Uh, so after the final rule was published, the rule was challenged in court. 
Uh, as a result, the effective date was delayed from December 26, 2023 to February 26, 2024 now. So the effective date for those is just around the corner. And I know since it was such a controversial topic, I, I expect we'll hear more about that soon. Uh, so 2023 was a busy year for the antitrust regulators. Uh, Sarah, did you want to bring up the major points from merger guidelines? Absolutely. So this was the big year that the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission jointly released um, new merger guidelines, which this was a pretty big deal since this is the first update of the horizontal merger guidelines since 2010. And horizontal mergers are mergers between substitute products. So say you have two dollar stores or two craft stores or two grocery stores that want to merge. The DOJ and FTC will use these new guidelines to identify mergers that could raise concern. Um, and something that stands out about these new merger guidelines that's different from the past is that they include the vertical merger guidelines as well as the horizontal mergers. Vertical mergers are mergers between complements. So think of like the old steel companies from the 19th century that would own the iron mines and the railroads and the steel mill steel mills. That's a vertical merger. And so now those two types of mergers, horizontal and vertical, are governed in the same document, which is a break from the past. And also compared to previous guidelines, these new guidelines give DOJ and FTC a little more discretion and leeway in deciding which mergers to challenge, um, which is new. And uh, we'll plug our uh, Regulatory Study Center visiting scholar, Mary Sullivan, who's written extensively on these guidelines. She's a former FTC employee, and so she knows so much more about this, and definitely go check out her work on it on our website, but we wanted to highlight it here in the year in review. Yes, highly recommend Mary's comment on the draft merger, on the merger guidelines. Uh, so banking rule changes appeared on the agenda last year after some high-profile problems in the banking system. Uh, Zoe, let us know about how the rules for bank supervision were changed. Um, so we know that starting with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last March, uh, the bank failures definitely mark one of the most important events of 2023. That also led to some notable actions in the regulatory sphere, including revisions to some banking regulations established following the 2007 to 2009 financial crisis. In September, uh, three agencies, the Office of Controller of the Currency, the Federal Reserve Board, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation jointly issued two proposed rules to address the risks of large banking organizations' exposures. The first proposal would increase the capital requirements for large banking organizations and banking organizations with significant trading activity. The proposed uh, revisions would also align with recent changes to the international capital standards issued by the Basel um, Committee on Banking Supervision, which is commonly known as the Basel Three uh, reforms. The second proposal would require large banking organizations to issue and maintain minimum amounts of long-term debt. Also, reviews of the 2023 bank failures reveal that poor co corporate governance and risk management practices were contributing factors to the failures. In response to that, uh, FDIC also issued proposed guidelines last year 
to establish standards for corporate governance and risk management for large institutions. Agencies also issued other banking regulations not really uh, related to the recent bank failures. For example, the Federal Reserve Board finalized a rulemaking it initiated in 2016 to adopt um, risk-based capital requirements for depository institution coding companies that are significantly engaged in insurance activities. Yes, uh, thankfully, the Federal Reserve and the other regulators were able to stave off any kind of systemic banking problems. Um, so that, that was a big relief. We don't want a replay of the 2009 crisis. So um, looking now to a topic that seemed to be in the news just about every week last year, the movement to eliminate the use of forever chemicals or PFAS. Would you like to walk us through the main actions on PFAS, Mark? Sure, uh, PFAS, or I'll probably say PFAS, it's an acronym for uh, several or quite a number of chemicals um, that as you referred to as forever chemicals. And they basically, they don't decompose very quickly. And so they stay in the environment uh, and in uh, things like drinking water and stuff for a very long time. And EPA has been continuing with its strategic roadmap for regulating PFAS um, because it finds that PFAS are linked to adverse human health effects by an expanding body of scientific studies. Uh, there were several new actions this year um, first was a proposal for significant new use rule for inactive PFAS substances, and those are ones that haven't been actively manufactured or processed in the U.S. since 2006. Um, and if any companies want to go about manufacturing and processing uh, for new activities, they've got to notify EPA, and then EPA is going to decide if... Um, that new activity would present an unreasonable risk to health or the environment. Another EPA um, action, which was a final rule, covered reporting requirements for entities that had been ma actively manufacturing or importing PFAS substances since 2011. There's also another final rule to update the toxics release inventory to include nine PFAS substances. And uh, that means that the industry must report when these substances are released into the environment. Um, another one is an advance notice on Superfund designation for seven PFAS substances. And this would allow EPA to dedicate resources to cleaning up contaminated sites. And the big one here uh, is a proposal to designate additional PFAS substances as contaminants in drinking water. And so included in this proposal is a health-based maximum contaminant level for PFAS, which is going to be set at zero uh, based on the proposal. And uh, so a lot of stuff going on here. A lot of re reporting requirements were very heavy in terms of EPA's actions uh, along this line. And I am confident that we're going to be seeing a lot more PFAS-related actions uh, in 2024. Regular drumbeat at the EPA. Um, some notable progress was made last year in addressing climate change. So how was the regulatory system involved in moving forward on climate issues, Sarah? 
Definitely. So the regulatory system took some actions regarding greenhouse gas emission regulations this year, and it seemed to fall into two big categories of regulations, one of which addressed how we measure greenhouse gas emissions and the other of which addressed reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So in terms of how we measure greenhouse gases, the Council on Environmental Quality in the White House issued guidance for agencies as agencies are analyzing greenhouse gases in their proposals. And something notable from that is that the CEQ encouraged agencies to consider greenhouse gases when selecting between the policy options that the agency chooses to assess. EPA also issued a supplemental notice of proposed rulemaking that would amend the greenhouse gas reporting rule to improve data collection and data usage for other Clean Air Act rulemakings. And it also added additional reporting requirements for other economic sectors, so expanding who needs to report greenhouse gases. And finally, in terms of measurement, the Federal Highway Administration issued a rule for states who are um, assessing the national highway system to consider the carbon footprint of the highway system as they're doing their work. Um, so that was fun to see the Department of Transportation getting in on that action. And then in terms of emissions reductions, the EPA proposed some new vehicle emission standards for model years 2027 to 2032. And for light and medium duty vehicles, the proposals actually combined greenhouse gas emissions and criteria pollutant emissions because technology now has advanced so much that car companies can mitigate both of those types of emissions using uh, zero emission vehicle technology. Um, and in addition to those more stringent emission standards, the proposal also included a durability requirement for light duty electric vehicle batteries, which I found interesting to include batteries in that rulemaking. And on a different topic, EPA proposed um, some new source performance standards for fossil fuel-fired electric generating units. And those pr proposed new source performance standards repealed a Trump-era affordable clean energy rule. And in addition to the performance standards themselves, EPA issued a supplemental proposal with a regulatory flexibility analysis for comments on how the proposals would affect small businesses. Uh, you brought up a good point there. There were some rules directly overturned, um, just outright reversed. Um, Mark, would you like to highlight for us some key rules at EPA that were changed? Sure. Um, presidents regularly attempt to reverse the regulatory agenda of previous administrations. And uh, EPA is a common target, so it makes sense to continue to focus on uh, a lot of the actions taken by them. This year, or 2023, actually, was more of the same. Biden worked to reverse uh, several Trump administration actions, and some of those actions uh, were themselves reversals of Obama-era rules. Uh, let me focus on a few examples. Um, first was the final uh, defining waters of the U.S., or WOTUS rule. We've actually included this WOTUS rule in every year in review since 2017. So it's a common theme uh, that presidents uh, want to change. Obama made a change in 2015. Then Trump uh, made changes in 2019 and 2020. And now Biden is revising the definition of WOTUS that builds on the pre-2015 definitions that were largely in place from 1977 to 2015. Uh, second action was the proposed National Ambient Air Quality Standards for Particulate Matter, or PM. So under Trump, 
uh, EPA decided to retain these PM standards uh, and not make any major changes to them. Now, EPA is going to lower one of the standards, the primary annual standard for PM 2.5. And the agency is also taking comments on whether to retain or lower the primary and secondary 24-hour PM 2.5 standards. Notice there that there are different standards for the 24-hour versus the annual, as well as um, there's primary and secondary ones. Uh, and in this context too, a lower standard is actually a more stringent regulation because uh, it means there's a less concentration of particulate matter in the air. Uh, another final rule uh, that was uh, issued this year that was a reversal was the appropriate and necessary finding re-hazardous air pollutants that are toxic to humans. In 2020, EPA under the Trump administration revoked the appropriate and necessary finding, concluding that it's not appropriate and necessary to regulate these hazardous air pollutants from coal and oil fired power plants. What the administration is doing now is reaffirming a 2016 finding under the Obama administration that found that it was appropriate and necessary to regulate hazardous air pollutant emissions after considering cost. And then finally, the last regulation I'll discuss is a proposal related to the amendments to the mercury and air toxic standards. And this is actually related to the previous appropriate and necessary finding uh, because the Trump administration bundled the appropriate and necessary finding with this residual risk and technology review of these mercury standards. Uh, the 2020 action under the Trump administration, it made no revisions to the regulations. Um, and this 2023 proposal would amend several of those provisions that would ultimately lead to some more stringent regulation of hazardous air pollutant emissions. Thanks, Mark. Uh, so a, a much needed legislative overhaul of immigration remained elusive last year, but there were some important changes in immigration rules. And Zoe, can you walk us through those? So immigration is another recurring theme in our regulatory year in review series. Uh, I'll just highlight a few actions from last year. So the, the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice proposed and finalized a rule that uh, encourages migrants to use lawful, safe, and orderly pathways into the U.S. or otherwise to seek asylum or other protection in another country through which they travel. The agencies issued this action because they expect a potential surge of migration at the southwest border of the U.S. following the termination of uh, CDC's Title 42 public health order. In addition, uh, DHS proposed to amend its regulation governing immigrant visas in March. The current regulation, which was promulgated in 1952, allows consular officers to conduct an informal evaluation of the family members of an immigrant visa applicant to identify potential grounds of ineligibility. So last year's proposal would remove that section. So the consular officers will no longer be able to do that. And uh, agencies also moved forward with amending regulations applicable to non-immigrant workers in 2023. Um, first, DHS issued two proposals to amend its regulations governing the H-1B and H-2 programs. 
the uh, Department of Labor took actions to revise the regulations regarding the certification of temporary employment of H2A agricultural workers. Finally, toward the end of uh, last year, the Department of Labor initiated a rulemaking by seeking a public input on revisions to Schedule A of the permanent labor certification process to include occupations in science, technology, engineering, and, and mathematics, commonly known as the STEM occupations, mm -hmm. as well as other non-STEM occupations. Right, and if we were to just uh, grab a final takeaway or concluding remark from each one of you, uh, what would be your takeaways? I can jump in first. Um, so 2024 is an election year, and this will you know, be the final um, year of at least Biden's first term. And so the administration uh, is going to be trying to finish up a lot of actions um, before then. So 2024 is probably going to be pretty full. Uh, that's my major takeaway. And even throughout 2023, there was a few actions we left off our list um, that we know are probably going to be on the table in 2024. And these would include uh, a CEQ proposal to revise the regulations implementing the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. Uh, EPA had a proposal to require water systems to remove all lead pipes. And the FCC also proposed to reinstate net neutrality. I would be very surprised if um, if those didn't move forward in 2024. I'll piggyback off of Mark's point about the administration trying to get a lot of actions out due to it being an election year. If uh, President Biden loses re-election, then the Congressional Review Act will come into play in early 2025. And the CRA is uh, one of Congress's main regulatory oversight mechanisms where they can um, issue resolutions and basically revoke rules that administrations have issued. And it's most often used in an administration's turnover period where it changes from the president of one party to another. And so as we get later into the year, um, more and more regulations will be potentially subject to re revocation by the Congressional Review Act. So that'll be something I'm keeping an eye on. Great, uh, I'll just add a final note here. Uh, in this review, we highlighted 10 important regulatory themes, but as Mark mentioned, this is definitely not an exact, uh, exhaustive list of noteworthy regulatory developments from 2023. There are certain actions uh, we want to look for in uh, this year, 2024. Well, it all adds up to a momentous year for regulatory process. Um, we've been describing 2023 as a potential turning point for regulatory review in that the previous guidance from OIRA and OMB had been the roadmap that agencies followed for over 20 years. Um, will the new practices for benefit cost analysis have long lasting durability like, like, like the previous guidance? That's an open question. The reg studies team will keep you briefed as trends develop. I highly recommend checking out the full commentary of our 2023 regulatory year in review at our website, which you can find at go.gwu.edu slash regstudies and click on publications. Thanks to Zoe, Mark, and Sarah for this helpful overview. I hope you will all join us again soon. Thanks, Nate. Stay tuned for uh, next year. <laughs>